Welcome, everyone. It is the 23rd of December, 2021. Uh, uh, my guest just left. I had guests over. I think on the 28th, I'm going to be doing a show with one of them. It's been a very busy day, but actually, it was quite enlightening. See, today, I wanted to talk about some other things and we'll cover a little bit about Russia, but we knew that was coming. But we're going to talk about the Great Reset. See, a lot of people talk about this and unfortunately, they don't seem to grasp it very well. I made a mention of it back in 2020 by pointing out how the year 2020 was a wet dream for historians. And the reason that it is a wet dream for historians is because, I mean, pandemic, race wars in the same place, dust bowls, locusts, I mean, everything. And the thing is, what people think, I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll take a look at the chat while I um, put on President Trump's, no, I shouldn't, because you should pay attention to that. I'll find a little song. And I want those of you that are in the chat, I'm going to look at the chat. I'm just going to be looking at the chat while we play, I don't know, let's just play that really nice Russian beat since we're going to, right after President Trump's Christmas greeting, we're going to go straight into Russia. So why not listen to that amazing Russian piece, right? It has a three-minute piece. I just want you guys to think, for those that are listening on the podcast version, I just want you to think, 
What do you think Great Reset means?
was Vladimir Putin playing Seven Nation Army in 2017 uh, while he was waiting for President Xi? The question that I posed is, what do you think the Great Reset is? See, <clears throat> we're going to go back in time today. And you know what? It's the fault of my guests because we had such a great conversation. And it's, uh, you know, we were talking about things. It was a good break from uh, recording. Guys, I kid you not, like this thing kept crashing and I thought it was auto-saving. Auto I, I feel so dumb sometimes. Uh, <laughs> it was a good break. We had a, a gyro and, you know, we're planning for Christmas Day and stuff because um, I'm going to have dinner at my place. Um, you know... I'm looking at all these, and they're all great. One person, uh, the guy with the sweater, really brought it home in summary. So I guess um, it's important that we kind of talk about history, like real history, not the history we're told to think is history. And then maybe you could understand um, why you're able to see it now, because bells and stuff. And we'll, we'll circle to that. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that, uh, fires are really being let loose, uh, to the point that, um, CNN is, uh, really starting to talk about it too. And Putin, and it's, uh, Putin is, uh, pretty upset. And pretty straightforward, and they do not like straightforward. He says they cheated. What does he mean? Take a listen to what CNN is telling you. Vladimir Putin making disturbing comments in public today in his annual news conference. He is blaming the Ukrainian government, saying it's the one preparing for war in a military operation, despite the fact that Russia has amassed tens of thousands of troops along the border. He also says it's in the ball is in NATO's court when it comes to de-escalating the situation there. Seen as Melissa Bell, she's been listening in from Moscow. And Melissa, you, you listen to Putin's comments, and it sounds like he's in effect making a public case for Russian military action in Ukraine. That's right, and a case uh, to the Russian people specifically. I mean, he really heard him lay out the justification there might be for an intervention, the uh, nature of the Donbass, these Russian-speaking people, he said, who'd found themselves in Ukraine after the carve-out uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, but that was very much for his domestic audience. For the rest of us, uh, really, what we heard was him laying the blame for the current tensions around Ukraine squarely at the feet of Kiev, first of all, saying that he had the impression that perhaps some kind of military operation in the east of the country was being planned and linking that to the sanctions that are being threatened by the West, uh, saying, look, the West is saying to us, if you intervene, if you help these people in the East, uh, there will be war. Perhaps that's a, there's a suggestion there that there will be. Uh, he also spoke, you're quite right, to those forthcoming talks, the ones that we now know will be held in January between NATO, the United States and uh, Russia. They could be mediated. We learned during that nearly four hour press conference by Italy. And he laid out some of his thinking, saying uh, when he was asked specifically whether Russia would invade uh, Ukraine, 
Ukraine, that it would not so much depend on the course of those negotiations, rather on whether the West would give Russia its guarantees that it's been requesting, specifically, Jim, that NATO would not progress with any eastward expansion of uh, its uh, borders. Now, to have a listen to the tone that he struck and the analogies that he raised, it was an interesting press conference, Jim. How would the Americans react if we placed our missiles on the border between Canada and the United States or on the Mexican border? Not a single inch to the east, they told us in the 90s. And what do you know? They cheated. They just deceived us blatantly. Five ways of NATO expansion. And there you go. Now in Romania and Poland, weapon systems appear. Now, that really speaks to some of the fears that we've heard the Russian president speak about these last few days, Jim, specifically the idea that should that eastward expansion of NATO continue, and you heard there his deep distrust for anything that NATO or Western leaders had to say on this issue, uh, then they might be faced with the possibility of weapons systems in Ukraine on the doorstep of Russia, that clearly unacceptable to the Russian leader. So an interesting insight into exactly what he's been thinking, even as he builds up his troops on the Ukrainian border, Jim. No question. Of course, NATO's response has been that's up to NATO and those countries, not not to Russia. Uh, we'll see where the negotiations go. Melissa Bell in Moscow, thanks so much. Russian President Vladimir Putin is blaming the U.S. and NATO for worsening tensions in Eastern Europe and blaming the West for his country's military buildup on the Ukraine border. In his annual news conference, Putin lashed out. How would the Americans react if we placed our missiles on the border between Canada and the United States or on the Mexican border? Not a single inch to the east, they told us in the 90s. And what do you know? They cheated. They just deceived us blatantly. Five ways of NATO expansion. And there you go. Now in Romania and Poland, weapon systems appear. Joining me now for more on this is CNN Global Affairs analyst Susan Glasser. Good to see you, Susan. So Putin claiming that it's Ukraine that is pre- that is uh, preparing for military action. It's his impression, I believe, is how he put it. W- why is he even saying that? Because it's not clear, because it's not true. Well, uh, you know, Kate, I mean, lying works, unfortunately, and Vladimir Putin has shown this over a long career, two decades in power. We see it in our own democracy as well. Lying works. Unfortunately, there's nothing truthful about that statement. What you have is Russia, which is mobilized a military force that could grow to be 175,000 troops on the border of Ukraine uh, by next month, according to U.S. intelligence estimates, already more than 100,000 troops there. Uh, Would you mobilize your military to respond if there were 100,000 hostile forces on your border? Of course you would, number one. Number two, the comments about NATO. This is, I cannot underscore this enough. This is a manufactured crisis that Putin has constructed. NATO is not one bit closer to having Ukraine join it today. There was no imminent action uh, on the part of NATO that would suggest uh, anything like this kind of response uh, is warranted. The last time Vladimir Putin uh, invaded Ukraine, and remember, he's already done that. He did that in 2014. Ukraine was not a member of NATO then. It's not a member of NATO now, nor is it in any prospect of doing so anytime in the near future. You're talking about what he said about NATO. I mean, he was asked directly if Russia... Wait a minute. Didn't last week NATO say that Ukraine will be getting into NATO? Am I... Am I 
hearing things because now they're saying that that Ukraine isn't part of NATO, but that was actually breaking news last week. But now NATO, they're not part of Ukraine's not part of NATO uh, right now, but they said they're giving the membership. So I'm really confused here at this fake news reporting and her eyelashes are really, really fake, too. I would guarantee not to invade Ukraine. And Putin said it depends on whether or not NATO would expand eastward. I mean, he says NATO has repeatedly broken their pledge not to do that. I, here's how he said it. It was the U.S. It was the USA who, who came with missiles to our house. It is a warning to Biden. But what does Biden do with it? Well, again, just to be clear, like that there never was any NATO pledge not to expand, obviously, uh, number one. Number two, the statement that he's quoted uh, in his news conference is saying is one that he's is a false claim he's made many times before. Right. The implication being that the U.S. said it would not ever move one inch to the east. That's that's not an accurate uh, statement of any commitment the U.S. made. Gorbachev uh, has has reinforced that many times he's been asked about this. So the question of what is President Biden going to do? I think we're in the the anxious phase of the moment where, uh, you know, jaw jaw is better than war war. That's the famous quote. Uh, so the, the effort to begin diplomatic negotiations that, by the way, do not exclude Ukraine, that include the U.S. and Europe as well as Ukraine. That's very important. You don't want big powers uh, determining your fate if you're a country like Ukraine stuck between Russia and Europe. And so I do think there's an urgent effort. There are some indications there will be talks with the Europeans uh, and the Russians next month in January. That obviously is preferable to any imminent military action. I would note that we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, Christmas, December 25th, 1991. Vladimir Putin has called that the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That's a very resonant date for him. Yeah. In responding to Putin, a senior administration official just told reporters, Susan, that if Russia invades Ukraine, so it's similar to what we have heard before, of course, the U.S. And here's the, what the administration official said is ready to act if and when we need to. And we have been clear that there will be significant consequences. But is it totally clear yet what that action would be? I, the answer is no. There are certainly uh, an array of options available to the United States and its partners uh, in Europe, Germany, France. Uh, one thing is that Germany could uh, uh, absolutely cut off and end permission for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia. That's certainly uh, being actively discussed. The U.S. has supported that, but Biden has stopped short of imposing full sanctions on companies that, that help to build that pipeline. So Nord Stream is one option, sending more uh, military equipment to Ukraine, to sending military advisors in addition to Ukraine is a possibility. Uh, uh, there is the possibility of stepped up sanctions. There have been round after round of sanctions, as you know, Kate, but there's still ways to go even more directly after Putin and his inner circle uh, ruling regime, which the U.S. has stopped short of doing in the past. Susan, it's always great to have your perspective. Thanks for being here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's very interesting. Now let's see what CBS has to say about what Putin said, too. Because this is all so confusing. I mean, we heard Stoltenberg say it himself that the Ukraine is going to be coming in. I mean, this is just really weird and bizarre.
Vladimir Putin held his annual televised news conference. He spoke about escalating tensions with the U.S. over Moscow's military buildup at the Ukrainian border. Around 500 international and domestic journalists attended the event and asked questions about everything from Ukraine to Russia's fight against COVID-19. This comes days after Putin accused the U.S. and NATO of taking aggressive actions along Russia's border with Ukraine and threatened to use, quote, retaliatory military measures. Mary Ilyushina is in Moscow with more on the Putin's press conference today. Let's get right into it. What did Putin have to say in regard to this military buildup at the Ukrainian border and the West's involvement in that? Yeah, that's right. Ukraine basically was the main topic of all the foreign policy questions here during this four-hour marathon. He was asked straight up, can he guarantee that he's not going to invade Ukraine? And he didn't go as far as to say or to guarantee that. You know, he said that if the Western um, action continues, which he sees as aggressive um, on, you know, at his doorstep, uh, Russia's doorstep is what Putin believes Ukraine is, um, then Russia will have to respond one way or another. Um, and he explained this buildup basically saying, that they view what's happening in Ukraine and their willingness to join NATO as a threat to Russia. And he, he justifies um, this massing of troops in Russia, as we know, um, mass almost 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border right now um, as a means to secure Russia's interests and Russian um, global standing. So he, at first, you know, at first he said that, you know, Russia is willing to talk with the U.S., but if the talks don't, yield what Putin wants, the guarantees that he wants, um, he is not ruling out military action. Mary, we learned earlier this week that a bilateral engagement would be taking place between the U.S. and Russia in January. What do you think it is that Putin wants? Well, Putin wants essentially to restructure the whole hierarchy and the social, um, not social, sorry, uh, and the whole security architecture of Europe. Uh, he wants to NATO not to expand eastward. He wants NATO to guarantee that it will never be in Ukraine or any other form of Soviet Republic, uh, because he doesn't want to see Western military assets around his borders. And Russia sent U.S. diplomats a pretty sweeping list of demands um, in last week, and there have been some communications between National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and his Russian counterparts. Putin shared today that, um, as he said, days after New Year's, basically in early January, uh, Russian and U.S. representatives are going to meet in Geneva to discuss those things. So some sort of more or less calming lines from that came out from Putin today is that he is willing to talk, talk and negotiate. And he said um, that so far U.S. response in his view has been positive and businesslike. Um, but he wants legally binding guarantees, and he's always repeats that you know you can trust U.S. Um, on uh, these sort of legal documents. But nonetheless, he wants to pursue one. Um, and he also accused NATO of um, breaking their promises because he said Russia was promised multiple times. He said. Five times he was promised not to expand and still expand it. And he wants that to stop. And did he talk about the jailing of opposition leader Alexei Navalny at all today? Yes, that came up. Uh, he once again refused to uh, call him by his name. He refused to pronounce uh, the name Alexei Navalny. Uh, he was very dismissive of the question about um, Navalny because he said, he reiterated once again that Russia never got uh, what he wanted from Germany, which is evidence that he was indeed poisoned and indeed poisoned by Novichok. Um, and he said, you know, let's close the page on that one because we never heard anything uh, that would uh, allow Russia to open a criminal investigation. Obviously, you know, there's been multiple evidence that Navalny was indeed poisoned, but Russian authorities still continue to dismiss that. And as we know, Navalny has been in prison for many months now since the beginning 
uh, of the year and continues to serve his two and a half year uh, long sentence uh, and he's complaining about the conditions and sort of uh, treatment that he had uh, in prison. Putin was asked about Russia's low COVID-19 vaccination rate and high death toll. Do you uh, have any more information about what he said regarding those rates there in the country? Yeah, uh, Russian authorities are currently trying to sort of change their attitude towards how to persuade Russians to get vaccinated and how to persuade them to treat coronavirus more seriously, sort of cover up for their previous informational mistakes. Uh, because from the beginning of the pandemic, Russian authorities were very dismissive of how serious coronavirus is. And now they're seeing that the really kind of low vaccination rates are still continue um, here. And, you know, we know that Russia was first to um, register the vaccine. But currently, the collective immunity here barely reached 60 percent, uh, which is not what was in the government's plan. So Putin, again, said, uh, urged Russians to get vaccinated, urged Russians to get vaccinated, to get booster shots. Um, but he still acknowledged for the first, not for the first time, but uh, he's recently started to acknowledge there have been mistakes in the way the pandemic was handled and in, in the way that Russians have been informed um, how serious it is and that they should actually get vaccinated. That's a bit unusual and very interesting. So Russia, like many other countries right now, is dealing with surging inflation. What did Putin have to say about this? And is there a concern that possible U.S. sanctions due to the Ukraine matter could make matters worse? Yeah, Putin was asked about inflation, and he said that this year showed 88% inflation, uh, and they were hoping for 4%, and they, you know, see that there's a very big discrepancy between their uh, initial plan. But he quickly pivoted to say that, you know, in the U.S. it's worse, and that uh, he, you know, Russia is not doing so bad compared to many Western countries, which was quite surprising. Uh, in terms of sanctions, more and more Russians, uh, just regular Russians, are becoming sort of concerned that, you know, if there's going to be a new round of sanctions, that might target some very, very close to hard things like iPhones, because we, you know, there's the media reports that U.S. is considering to ban certain imports um, to Russia and that could affect, you know, basic, basic things like iPhones. Uh, and that's something that Russians were very, very sensitive about. That's sort of the response to that has been so far the biggest uh, sort of Russian, just ordinary Russian reaction to potential more with Ukraine potential repercussions that it might bring, um, that they, you know, that very foreign policy issue can become really domestic really quickly. And they're worried about that. Mary, thank you for breaking it all down for us. Take care out there. Take care out there, Mary. That's right. Because it's a pandemic and people aren't really dying everywhere. So that was very interesting. And what you're going to see is how you're not supposed to know this is happening. And you are. It's kind of like when you're in surgery. Have you guys ever heard of those horror stories where people wake up while they're in surgery and they've got people in their bodies and they can see the surgery happening? They can't really feel it. They know what's going on and they're just like, damn, some of them like die from a heart attack, right? This is exactly what's happening right now to the whole world. They're rearranging, they're fixing, they're changing. The great experiment that they thought would happen failed. And so now you're awake in the middle of surgery. And you kind of feel a little bit of pressure. And you're like, do I scream? Is this a nightmare? Because everything just looks so comical, right? You're looking at shit on TV and you're like, is this even real? Like, did they just say that out loud? 
Are they saying things like this out loud? They, did he just shit himself in the Vatican and everybody saw it and they pretended it didn't happen? Did Kamala Harris just say that she's going to the border, but she went past it? Are they telling us that they're spending money because they want to help us? There's inflation everywhere, but nobody's talking about it in the United States. Huh? We've got a pandemic where people aren't really dying. And, you know, we don't have orphans yet. Right? You see what I'm saying? So, you know, it's it's like it's like you're awake in the middle of surgery and you're just like, oh, well, hold on a second, buddy. Hey, surgeon, get your hands out of me. <laughs> I'm 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 looking at stuff. I I'm I'm watching you and uh you know, you need to close this up because I'm gonna stand up and this is not gonna be good for you. This is what it is. This is where you're at. But we'll talk about that. But before we get into the dreary history or the reset that you don't remember was a reset, but you're going to see it now. Um, <laughs> reset is basically this. Well, no, we need a story for that so you can understand it. This is kind of like a fiction thing, I think, more than anything. But before that, we should hear a very important Christmas message. And why am I playing it on the 23rd? Because we'll have more to talk about tomorrow. Love you. Robert, I want to thank you so much. Uh, you know, you never told me how beautiful this is. This is some real place. What a job you've done, too. Highly respected man. And it is true, I was a little insulted when I first met him. I met him through watching television. He does very well on television and spreading the word. And he started talking about a man that he watched and he's been watching. And he may not know the Bible as well as all of us. But he loves God. He loves Jesus. And he's a leader. And he's going to lead us into great things and helping and saving Christianity. And we've done a real job. And as you know, we're in trouble now. We're in trouble. I think our nation's in great trouble. I don't think we've ever had a, a time like this with what happened in Afghanistan, the way that was done so badly. And you look at the borders and you look at the inflation, which is going to rip our country to pieces. We had no inflation. We had oil, much of it coming from Texas. We even, we even filled up the strategic reserves for decades and decades. They were empty and getting lower all the time. And we saw the prices at the right price. I said, let's fill it up. What about those strategic reserves? 75 million barrels we filled up. And we made a good deal for the country. We made a good deal for Texas. But I will say that uh, there's a lot of clouds hanging over our country right now very dark clouds, but we will come back bigger and better and stronger than ever before. I'm telling you that. We won't let this happen. We won't let it happen. And there's such spirit out there right now. I've never seen anything like it. I will say that um, when I look at a group of people like this, the, the love in this room, the love for this gentleman, and for you, 
Amy, thank you very much for being here and being with us. But the love in this room is uh, incredible. But I will say the love all over the country is incredible. They want to see things happen. They love our country and they want to see good things happen. And that will take place. And, you know, they wrote these beautiful words for me. Look at these beautiful words. But I said, I really would rather speak from the heart. Okay, if that makes sense. It's so nicely. Look at that. So nicely. It says, thank you. They say, Pastor Robert. I just said, I just think of you as Pastor or Robert, but I'm going to put them together. Pastor Robert. But I'm thrilled to be here with you today. And that's true. And First Baptist Church, which is a respected place of worship all over the world because of what you've done and what you've done, Robert, all over the world. And I have to just start by wishing everybody a very, very Merry Christmas, because it's a it's a great time of it's a great time of the year. I think it's my favorite time of the year. I miss my parents. I had great parents. I had wonderful parents and I miss them always more so on Christmas. But uh, First Lady, I think, who is loved by everybody, she didn't get exactly a fair shake. She would make the most beautiful Christmas decorations. And I remember she made these magnificent red trees and the media said, oh, that's terrible. I said, honey, next time try white. She made magnificent, remember, the most beautiful you've ever seen, white trees. And they said, oh, that's terrible. I said, the next time, let's do it more traditional. Let's go with green. Uh, we went with beautiful green trees, and they said, why wouldn't they have made them white like they used to be? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, she's loved all over, and she's uh, got a tremendous heart, and she says hello, okay? And very specifically to you and your wonderful wife. But more than 2,000 years ago, an angel, the Lord appeared, and really, it's, uh, it's been a long and beautiful history. But an angel of the Lord appeared to humble shepherds and proclaimed the reason for our Christmas joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, when I was listening to Robert, uh, perhaps unknowingly, you used the word Savior a lot. And our country needs a Savior right now, and our country has a Savior. And... That's not me. That's somebody much higher up than me. Much higher up. We just do what we have to do. But the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ forever changed the world. It's impossible to think of the life of our own country without the influence of his example and of his teachings our miraculous founding, overcoming civil war, abolishing slavery, defeating communism and fascism, reaching boundless heights of science and discovery, so many incredible things, even right outside the magnificent skyscrapers and the whole development that this beautiful church is a part of. So different, so beautiful, however, so beautiful. And uh, the United States 
ultimately becoming a truly great nation. And we're going to keep it that way. We're going to keep it that way. We're not going to let it go. We're not going to let it go. But none of this could have ever happened without Jesus Christ and his followers and his church. None of it. And we have to remember that Jesus Christ is the ultimate source of our strength and of our hope. And here and everywhere and for all time, Jesus Christ. And we want to just thank everybody who believes because we're believing in our country. We're believing in the world. We're believing in life. This Christmas, let us pray for the hundreds of thousands of men and women serving in our nation's military. I'm so proud of what we were able to do for our military. And with what happened recently, the the disgrace that was put on it by the way we left, it looked like we left in surrender and we didn't leave in surrender. We left in strength. We could have left. We were set to leave in strength and dignity. And it wasn't handled well. It was handled, I think, perhaps, and I've said this often, I think it was the most embarrassing day in the history of our country, the way we left. We can't let that happen. We have to be respected throughout the world. And if we're not respected for strength, we are not going to be a nation too much longer. We'll be a nation in a lot of trouble. But I want to just uh, thank the incredible people of the military because they understand what I'm saying better than anybody could understand it. Better than anybody could. And the Americans and law enforcement who dedicate their lives to keeping our community safe, who aren't allowed to do their jobs in many cases. When you look at what's happening throughout our country with the crime, the crime that nobody's ever seen anything where they go into department stores in packs and they take everything, they break everything. The police aren't allowed to do their jobs. We have to give the police their authority back, and we have to give them their dignity back. And all of it will stop very quickly. Let us thank Almighty God for our nation, for our precious freedoms, and our most of all, and I have to say this, for the gift of God's everlasting mercy and grace, we ask God to bless our nation and our people with faith and hope and love and peace. Once again, I have to say that uh, on behalf of the people of this country, we all love you. We love what you stand for. We love what you represent. Melania will be here the next time, and we will do this together because I said, don't worry, I'll do this one all by myself. And she said, I'd love to go. Now that I see how beautiful this is, she's going to be very upset with me. <laughs> very, very upset. But seriously, we have a incredible country. It will be more incredible in years to come. We will do what has to be done to make America great again. We are going to make America great again. We are never going to forget that message. And I want to thank Robert and Amy, and I want to thank everybody in the audience. And it's, we have to say, 
It's America first and make America great again. And we will do it. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Great honor to be with you. Thank you, Robert. That was an incredible message. And I hope you guys understood what he was telling the world. Now, I want to tell you a story. Right. I want you to picture a time, <clears throat> picture a time where there are um, big, big, strong titans. And they all get together and they decide to enslave this. land that they found, this, this, this place, a place. But then they realized that the, they couldn't enslave them because they were too stupid, right? Very stupid, very stupid. But they liked the fact that they were stupid, right? They, they loved them because they were stupid. And so what they did was they genetically changed them. Eh, you know, you would say mating, but it's not real. So they decided to create a new. And keep them as their pets. But they loved them as well and hated them. Why? Because they were happy and just existing, happy to simply exist. So the only way they could change them is by convincing them that they must change. So they needed to give them knowledge, different knowledge. And the only way to do that was to turn off a couple of codes in their system and turn on a couple of others. So they spliced, they diced, and they inserted the right code. And even though they weren't working at 100%, right, and they were only working at 10%, that 10% was just enough to keep some glue to keep the rest of the program silent and just amplify the portions that they wanted. And so these guardians took over. And ah, this is our land. We rah, rah. And as they continued to reign, right? These other people from other places of the same father, you know, just were moseying around and they were like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's going on? Wait, who? Wait, why are you there? You are not allowed to be there. And suddenly this war broke out and the majority of them got, you know, taken out. They were sent to the bowels and chained up forever and ever. And then a few of them escaped because they hid, right? A few of them escaped because they hid. And they had made children, right? So their children were there. And so then these other people came and moseyed about. They go, what are you doing? Well, I just cleaned up this place. Look, they're over there. They're not supposed to be there. This is so wrong. Ooh, I'm telling dad. And so, you know, everything just happened. 
right? It was like a huge war. Look, they made these dragons and they had this shit over here. And these people, they were using them like that and they're eating them and mating with them. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. They're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. Then the other ones were like, but they chose it. Okay, okay, okay. So we can't undo what they did because that's the law. So what do we do? Well, we we need to get rid of them. Well, we took out the big ones, but we don't know which one's which unless we do X, Y, Z. Let's just fucking flood the place and get rid of everyone. And, you know, we'll figure it out. And so it, they did. It was flooded. And then and we'll save the ones that we know that are okay and, and just leave it. You know, they're trapped there. We can't do anything. So the ones that go, they'll come back and they're trapped. They got to leave themselves. All right. All right. Got it. Got it. So as time went on, right, many had some of that code glue come off and many of them were able to create phones and get communications and convey it to the people. They, they made phones when they weren't supposed to be phones, let's say. And then throughout these scenarios, these cyclical scenarios of empires rising and falling, it would be the same damn scenario. Some fucking leftover child bloodline would come and say, all right, these people are dumb. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of all the adults. We're going to take all the children and then we're going to tell them what happened in history and they're going to accept it because they're kids. And then whatever stragglers adults are there, they're just really dumb and we're just going to beat it into them. And if they're not listening, we'll just take them out and we'll continue like that. So as they continued the people that were there, the ones that had hid, right, you know, were being taken out one by one. I mean, there could be only one, right? There's rules and rules. So, you know, it would happen again and again and again. And then suddenly, you know, um, the, the, all of these awakened type people were discovered, and the kings that were descendants, some were, some weren't of these, you know, original people that were there. This is just a story, right? Just saying allegedly, right? Knew that the source of all that it is and isn't would be sending down one of their own. And so they were like, you need to tell us because you can't lie to us. Because we know and you know and you have special skills where you can travel through time. You can see things and you're not allowed to not tell the truth. And so these people, a specific group of people were in front of a king and a descendant and could not lie. And they said... And then suddenly, there were blood of martyrs and children on the street to avoid the coming. But it came anyway. Because you don't say, I mean, you can't lie. But you can misdirect. And so it began. 
And it was at that point that that entry happened that all-seeing father saw everything firsthand and decided, I really need to help them wake up and came down and spoke. And because so many died, he had to die too. For him to come, many died. So he died for all of them. And then as time went on, it was realized from that period of time that those that were in power had the ability to silence the past and paint the future because they rewrite the past. Your future is based on your past and your past is based on your present. Who controls the present is the one that rewrites the past and paints forward for the future. But what if there's a period of time that say, I don't know, there was some involvement after the last time this was attempted in the 1700s, late 1700s, that someone was perusing around a little bit smarter, maybe another time, I don't know, something, and said, you know what? You've got a problem. You can't do this anymore because nothing can stop what's coming. And this is going to be your last attempt. And this is going to be a big problem. And whatever happens at the end of the seven of the 1700s will set the tone forward for what will come. And it does not look good. And it seems like it's too late because this is the point. The point that you thought would have been the experiment is the thing that's going to take you down. So as they tried as they might, all these kings and queens suddenly were taking orders from no one. Because their leaders were gone. And so now, with no orders... After, I guess, 1977, eight, nine, their leaders gone, then they needed to create a new type of leadership that stemmed from the ideology of the previous. But it didn't work because... Their subjects woke up in the middle and could see that this was happening again. And so this is how it goes. So how does it go? In 2020, when the murder hornets and the dust bowls came, I've said this, we've seen this movie before. It was really odd that we had Chaz in Seattle with the race wars because it was in this exact same location that they had race wars in the late 1918-1919. The masks all happened at the same time with that Spanish flu. The murder locust, the dust bowl. I mean, come on, anything else? Everything that happened in the first three decades of the 1900s was pounded into us 
within a year. And then there's hyperinflation and the threat of war in this time. It's not the Germans. It's the Russians that they're pushing and they're begging war. They're crying for war. They're literally crying for war. And you don't have to listen to me say it. Putin himself said it. They're asking for war because they're expanding. They keep telling me war, war. I mean, we've seen that before. When was World War One? World War One after the Spanish flu. When was the Great Depression? Right after the Spanish flu. When was the last push and change that suddenly we propelled into Hollywood and cars and TVs and radios all of a sudden exponentially because time was running out right there. And he tells you himself, they're asking and calling and screaming for war. Военную операцию. И нас заранее предупреждают, не вмешивайтесь, не защищайте этих людей. Вмешаетесь, будете защищать вот такие-то такие новые санкции последуют. И готовится, может быть, к этому. Первый вариант. Война, война, война. Read it out for you guys. Okay, I'm going to read it out for you guys. We are told war, war, war. We have an impression that. The Ukraine government is probably preparing the third and warning us beforehand, do not get involved, do not defend these people. If you get involved and defend, then the new sanctions will follow. And we probably need to get ready for it. That's the first scenario. Our actions will depend not on the negotiation, but on the unconditional security of Russia. Today, in the historical perspective, in this regard, we have made it clear and explicitly that further NATO movement eastward is unacceptable. What is unclear here? Are we putting missiles next to the United States borders? No. It is the United States that has come to us with their missiles. They are already on our doorstep. Our American partners tell us that they're ready to start this discussion. These talks in the very beginning of the next year in Geneva. Representatives from both sides have already been appointed. I hope the development of that situation will proceed a long path. Interesting. Very interesting. Now let's take a look at how this is done. See, stories are told about people that are good and shown as evil, and those that are evil that are shown as good. How does a man who's illiterate but a sea captain do so much good and get the backing of the elites of a nation? And then so much of a backing that it is a widespread movement. And this weird, insane influx of orphans from around the world, around the world in the late 1700s before the United States of America declared its independence. It declared its independence. But the rest of the world at that time was going through a plague 
was going through a massive amount of orphans, was going through regime change, was going through all of this. See, I had mentioned this before. I had mentioned it back in 2017. I think it was on a Hagman show where they would bring all these children and women from uh, Europe. It was just so weird. So weird. All of this has happened again. They cheer in the name of Thomas Coram because he felt so bad seeing all these poor orphans on the street that he decided to make a hospital, which meant hospitality, where they put all these poor orphan children in. And the way he got it done was by getting a bunch of elites to sign his petition to the king to create the foundling hospital. He made him the Duke of Bedford for that. It is so insane. The hospital had 17 Duke, 29 Earls, 6 Viscounts, 20 Barons, 20 Baronets, 7 Privy Counts, and a, the Lord Mayor and 8 Aldermen of the City of London, all as founders of the Foundling. See, what's weird is, is that so many people, re you, you know, they revered Thomas Coram. They made stories about him. They made music about him, right? Hallelujah was actually one. But there were actual books that they say are fiction. That Charles Dickens, who lived near the Foundling Hospital, wrote about wrote about these people that would prey on desperate people for their children so they can put them in the foundling hospital. What happened? Everyone got sick. They had a plague. And all of these adults died. And then all of these maidens were pregnant but couldn't seem to take care of their children, so they would take them. Families that would lose their job, and then they would take their kids. And then the wars came, obviously, and so they took their kids again, just to keep them safe, kind of like how they tried to do that in the 40s, you know, with the Nazis, where they would send the kids to the north on a train. Why? Why would the parents stay in London and all these orphans just went to the north? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. All these. And it was all because they heard the bells. <laughs> the Great Depression came after that. I mean, America was created. Everyone was in a depression. Regimes were being changed. They was insane. Everyone was at war. And then it settled. Fuck. We lost America, whatever. Let's just follow what they do because they're obviously expanding. And they've got land that can sustain themselves. They don't even need us. So let's just beat to that drum. And the new gods were born. 
telling the old ones how it's going to work. Not many of them are happy. Yeah, we talk about child trafficking and what the purpose of it is, but I don't think people see just how long it's been going on. Orphan trains and hospitals with orphans and orphanages. It usually happens a lot right before there are these, you know, changes. Nefarious, yes. Experimental, yes. But churning out a new nation is really hard, especially when everyone dies, right? That's what that's what I don't get is how people hadn't seen it. Well, let's take a look back, not that far back. We'll talk about the foundlings in a bit. But let's take a look back to the influenza of 1918 and listen to the people, which would include Dr. Fauci in this, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to find him in here at some point. Which includes Dr. Fauci telling you about influenza and all of these things. I think it's important for us to... uh Take a good breath. Take a really deep breath. And um, just pray for a little bit. Because what you're about to see from a 40,000 foot view may cause you some disruption. So go get that coffee. And I'll be right back. Don't medicate, just meditate. You waking up now, well, baby, you hella late. Educate, look at what's going on, let it resonate, accelerate. Find your inner hunger like you never ate. Agenda is to push the hate, separate and segregate. Don't celebrate quite yet, the storm is coming. Cue for heaven's sake. Violence that they demonstrate, instigate and penetrate. The values of our country and our God is what they desecrate. My fighters ain't no featherweight. Pulling out the seams of the fabric that they fabricate They feed us lies, manipulate, intimidate through fear and force Forcing us to sit and wait Until we come together, congregate, and then we liberate Praying that you give me strength to find some love amongst the hate Marching on these streets of blood Till I see the golden gates Troubadour, troubled souls, one of God's servants Blades out, cut the grass till we see the surface well, One day, I hope you see the truth this puppet show stays on because of you fools. We've been dancing with the devil way too long. I know it's fun, but get ready to pay your dues. Oh, God, come back home. This crazy world is filled with lies and abusers. I know the truth is hard to swallow, just digest it. Suspected something's going on, but chose to just neglect it. 
Deflected by some breaking news Oh, we just accepted Expected just to fall in line and follow their perspective Don't question their objective But I got a lot of questions How these kids molested but nobody's been arrested Read it in the testament These children are protected So I'm fighting all these terrorists Both foreign and domestic Refuse to be directed Lying out of sheep, only kneel to my God, so I'm dying on my feet. Uh, silence when we speak, but there's violence in the street. I've been rolling with the punches, I can't take it on the cheek. Uh, drink from a glass half full, I'm optimistic. People are sadistic, so vicious and malicious. Praying for assistance to overcome my position, or I'm gonna start resisting and then I pray for forgiveness. Oh, one day, I hope you see the truth. This puppet show stays on because of you fools. We've been dancing with the devil way too long. I know it's fun, but get ready to pay your dues. Oh, God, come back home. This crazy world is filled with liars and abusers. Need you now before we're too far gone. I hope one day they finally see the truth. God, we need you now. We need you now. We need you now. Puppet show stays on because of you fools. We've been dancing with the devil way too long. I know it's fun, but get ready to pay your dues. Oh, God, come back home. This crazy world is filled with liars and abusers. In 1918, I lived in Sequoia County. In 1918, my family living in South Philadelphia. In 1918, uh, we were living in El Paso, Texas. I was born and raised in Baltimore. In bustling cities and remote villages, in the United States and around the world, orphaned children cried for their parents in 1918. People of all cultures struggled with the same terrible threat. And within a matter of months, as many as 50 million would be dead. In the United States, the death toll reached 675,000, five times the number of U.S. soldiers killed in World War I. What was that deadly threat?
there was many, many people that died. We had just come from a few years before from Mexico, where we were living, on account of the revolution, the Mexican Revolution. I was about 10 years old. I was the oldest, and my four brothers and sisters of the family, only my dad and my sister, my smaller sister, did not get it. My two brothers were in one room sick. I was sick in the other bedroom with my mother. My poor dad and sister had to be our attendants and see what they could do for us. Influenza gave you such high fever. Mother told me that I thought her black hair was a cat, and I was afraid of it with a delirium from the high fever. People were left very weak with it, well, kind of that high fever. And uh, all schools and all public places and every place was closed, I guess nearly two or three weeks. I was eight years old. We lived near my dad's mother and uh, she and her daughter and two grandchildren were living close to us. And when they got the flu and got sick, my parents, we just moved in with them to where my mother could nurse them, all the patients and take care of them. At that time, my mother was 25 years old and she had three children. And she was expecting another baby in May. And this was in February. And she taken care of eight patients at one time, very sick patients with the flu, with no convenience, no modern facilities whatsoever. And mother had to get the wood to keep heat in the house to keep all those fires going, plus do the nursing care with eight patients. <laughs> My father's name is Tellus for Reina, but he always went by Tellus Good Morning. Good Morning was his Indian name. At that time, he was working in Tennessee for a DuPont company. Every time anybody was sick, he would always bring up the story about how he got sick while he was in Tennessee and how a lot of people from the village that had gone uh, were brought back sick. They were brought back in a train, he said. Some of them had passed away in Tennessee. In 1918, my mother was like just 11 years old, but she's, she remembers um, they uh, lived on the south side of the village. She remembers that church bell would ring every day, that there's a certain bell for a notice for the death. And she said she remembers as a little girl how awful it sounded. In 1918 as now, most people didn't think of influenza as a disease that could lead to death. We suffer through the flu season every winter. In the U.S., the flu season usually peaks between January and the end of March. The symptoms of a cold are usually a runny nose, sometimes low-grade fever, and just feeling a little wiped out. Influenza, on the other hand, is much, much more pronounced than that. People will generally have a high-grade fever, 
absolutely no energy whatsoever. Muscle aches, headaches, a fairly dry cough with a common cold. You may feel bad for a couple of days, but uh, after four to five days, you're starting to feel yourself again. With influenza, it's sometimes two weeks or more. Uh, really severe, it can go on to cause uh, pneumonia. Complications from the flu cause an average of more than 200,000 hospitalizations every year in the U.S. And an average 36,000 people die from those complications. During seasonal influenza epidemics in the United States, there are certain groups that are at higher risk for complications. Young children in particular, those less than two years of age, elderly people, particularly people 65 years and older, persons of any age who may have certain underlying chronic conditions, for example, asthma, chronic lung disease, chronic cardiovascular disease. And in addition, pregnant women are at higher risk for complications from seasonal influenza. While seasonal influenza is a serious health threat for people at risk of complications, the outbreak of influenza that swept the nation in 1918 and early 1919 killed over half a million people in the U.S. when the population was only a third of what it is today. I was four years old at that time. I was living at the Trujillo Ranch in Members, Baywood, New Mexico. My mother was the midwife and she tended to the people, delivery of babies and all that kind of thing. She used to take me with her to go and visit the new mothers and I love to go see the new babies. And I cried because at that time she didn't want to take me with her because she was tending to the sick and the dying. But the miracle about it is that she didn't get it. And according to her, none of us at home got it either. She would tell me about how people would die, sometimes two in the same bed, and they had no funeral services or anything like that. They would just carry them off to bury them. It was very hard for them to keep up uh, burying the, the dead because they were dying so fast. The one thing that stayed in my mind, because I used to hear it even later, was the pounding of the nailing of boards together, making... Uh, I called them boxes, coffins for the people. Whether people called it influenza, the grip, or the Spanish flu, it was clear this was not the flu that comes every winter. Today we know that influenza is caused by a virus, the influenza virus. We know that the virus spreads from one person to another through droplets when people cough and sneeze, or through contact with the virus on someone's hand or a contaminated surface. In 1918, no one knew what caused it, where it started, or how to stop it. They were scared because uh, it, it happened so rapidly. They didn't know what was going on, what was happening, why. There were few communities in the U.S. so small or isolated that they were sheltered from the waves of deadly disease that swept around the world. The influenza of 1918 even touched remote Inuit villages in Alaska, sometimes killing every man, woman, and child, or killing the adults and leaving the children with no one to care for them. The 1918 influenza struck some native peoples in the Southwest very hard, too. 
I don't think the doctor resided here, but he came from Albuquerque. A lot of our people, older people, didn't uh, speak the English language, so my dad would interpret for him what he was asking them to do, how to take care of themselves. They would work from, from early morning till late night, trying to visit every home in the Pueblo. In the morning when they got to some of the homes, they would find uh, maybe two or three people in the family that had passed away during the night. Every day they were burying people. The church bell would be tolling from morning to evening because of so many deaths. The Bureau of Indian Affairs sent Dr. D.A. Richardson to investigate the situation in the Pueblos near Albuquerque, New Mexico. He wrote, The strength of the Pueblos was not taken with the aged or markedly with the infants, but from the young adult life of the tribe. And this was true around the world. With the influenza that hits us every fall and winter, most healthy adults are sick for a week or two and recover. When people die of the flu, it's almost always the very young and the very old. But the influenza of 1918 was not only much more lethal than seasonal flu, the death rate was very high among young adults. Strong young men and women working to support and care for their families. My parents came to this country from Romania, Bessarabia. In 1918, my family was living in South Philadelphia. I think it was a neighborhood mostly of immigrants. It was a hard life. It was a rough life. My mother and father and my two sisters all had the flu. It was a very sad period. There was like a sadness over the city. When you looked out, you saw hardly anybody walking around. People stayed in their houses because they were afraid. And they said that it seems that if it killed you, it did it fast. Because they rem I remember them telling me that a young neighbor, they saw him coming home. They watched from the window. He coming from work. And the next afternoon, they saw him carried out. He died. Of all the cities in the U.S., Philadelphia had one of the highest rates of sickness and death and the most disruption. The city resisted putting measures in place that might have limited the spread of the flu. Measures such as prohibiting public gatherings where the flu could spread easily. The city allowed a large parade to take place to raise money for the troops fighting World War I. Although the marchers and crowd wore gauze masks, many people caught the flu from those who were already infected. Baltimore fared almost as badly as Philadelphia. Soldiers at Camp Meade, south of the city, became sick in mid-September, and by early October, there were 2,000 cases in Baltimore. Officials hesitated to close schools and other meeting places, which would have reduced contact between the sick and the well. Hospitals and funeral homes were overwhelmed, and the workers who kept the city and its businesses running were too sick to get out of bed. I from Steele went around and got all these men from down south to operate the mills, and there were just thousands of men coming off from the mills. My father worked for the Bethlehem Steel Company's bakery. The only black baker they ever had was my father, Henry Lindsay. 
the people were very kind to one another. And it was a place where everybody looked after one another. In the barracks, nobody lived in there but the men who worked for the Bethlehem Steel. Some of them that died, and the men who were around them didn't even know they were dead. Come home and have the man dead. Don't know how long he'd been dead. Because they went to work. We leave him there in the morning, come back, he's dead in the evening. My mother was sick and everything, and they quarantined us. We didn't visit nobody, and nobody visited us except this lady. This Mrs. Kizzy Thornton, she went round helping everybody who was sick. And I declare that lady never got sick of anything. Back in 1918, I was between 10 and 12 years old, I would say. And I got the flu, and it was just my mother and I. We were two of my friends. We went to elementary school together, and both of them was stricken with the flu, and I would go out to then Bayview Hospital to go visit her, and they'd put her out on a porch in the cold winter time, and they had blankets, blankets, and a hood on, but she died. Both of them died at a young age. People didn't understand, and there was no vaccine, but your parents did the best they could for you. The influenza of 1918-1919 was a pandemic, an outbreak of disease around the world which caused serious illness and death. Why was the influenza of 1918 so much more deadly than the seasonal flu we experience every winter? What was different about the influenza virus in 1918? The seasonal influenza viruses that cause annual outbreaks epidemics in the United States during our fall, winter, and early spring, those are influenza viruses that are circulating among people worldwide. And they are evolving, they're changing just a little bit, but they're human viruses. And so some percentage of the U.S. population and the world's population gets infected every year. Some become ill. Some percent recover from a self-limited illness. And all of these people who survive will have some immunity. Other people get vaccinated, and we receive some immunity through that vaccine. So there are two ways to acquire immune protection. One is through natural infection, in which you recover, you survive, then you have immunity. The other is through vaccination. And vaccination stimulates our body's immune system to produce antibodies against the specific virus strains that are contained in the vaccine. An influenza pandemic is different. An influenza pandemic is the emergence of a very new influenza A virus to which most of the population has not previously been exposed and does not have any immunity, no immune protection. And so what you see is very high numbers, very high percentage of people becoming sick worldwide. In the last 100 years, new influenza viruses have caused four pandemics in 1918, 1957, 1968, and 2009. Ultimately, they come from birds, wild waterfowl, ducks and geese, and various other birds. They can get into domestic poultry, chickens. They can also, as we know, get into human beings directly, pigs various aquatic mammals. They can get into horses. They can get into dogs and cats. So they can take any of these paths. And in theory, they could end up getting into people by 
uh, either coming directly from a bird or uh, going through a circuitous route in another animal. By a variety of mutations that occur for a number of reasons, these types of viruses can, under certain circumstances, adapt themselves to other species. And then as they propagate themselves in these other species, they adapt themselves better to spread from pig to pig or from bird to bird or from person to person. And the host we worry about the most, obviously, from a human health standpoint, is the human species. One of my dad's sisters lived pretty close to us, and she had a family of four children and her husband, and she was expecting, and she'd taken the flu, and of course, she passed away just, she, she was very sick, she passed away. The ladies that taken the flu that were pregnant, all we ever knew died, and my mother didn't get it. We don't know why pregnant women die of influenza at a high rate, but it's been documented for well over 500 years. One of the biggest risk factors for a fatal outcome from influenza is pregnancy. Whatever the reason, it's pretty clear that pregnant women in 1918 were at very high risk. Pregnant women, of course, are going to be in the younger age ranges, but non-pregnant women and men in that age range were also at much higher risk of dying. Why this happened, we don't know. In, in any flu pandemic, people die from pneumonia. Some percentage will always die, but it tends to be the older folks, people who have chronic conditions like heart disease and lung disease, pregnant women, um, infants, and so on. Um, this time in 1918, something very different happened. Otherwise healthy young adults died at a very high rate and constituted a fairly large percentage of the total deaths, something that's never been seen before. Why that happened is a mystery. Brevik Mission is northwest of Nome, Alaska on the Bering Sea. The fact that Brevik exists today is remarkable, since of the 80 residents in 1918, only five adults and three children survived the flu pandemic. Over 50 years ago, a young man with an interest in viruses found his way to the village. I was a medical student in, uh, in Sweden, and I decided to travel to the United States and uh, get a master's degree in virology. And then one thing led to the next and to the next, and I decided that to uh, go for my PhD. And one day we had a visitor, very prominent vi virologist, and I remember he's talking about everything that had been done to find out what was it to cause the 1918 flu. And then like a 15-second uh, comment at the end of his talk, he said, somebody ought to go to the northern part of the world and try to find a victim of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic buried in the permafrost. And that victim is likely to have been remained frozen for, for since 1918. At, at that time, it was something of you know, 35 years or 40 years. Right. So are you saying that at that point, because this was made, this uh, documentary was made a couple decades ago, Dr. Fauci suggested that we need to find someone in the North <laughs> that has this flu sequestered. I see. So we need to go find this flu in permafrost. Hmm. That's quite fascinating. I think we visited something like this before. Let's continue. 
virus. And tried to recover the virus. And then as if he went to something else. And that 15 seconds, <laughs> I happened to be there and heard, heard it. I immediately went to my faculty advisor to ask him, could that be a subject for my PhD? He said, oh yeah, why don't you go ahead? I happened to have worked during the summer of 1949 for a paleontologist in Alaska. The paleontologist, Otto Geist, had worked on the Brevik Peninsula and knew the missionaries in the villages there. With Geist's help, Halton was able to review copies of mission records from the fall of 1918. He found that the military had very good records showing the location and thickness of the permafrost in Alaska. On the basis of that, I came with, decided on, on three, three villages. So I showed up in June and I went to the first village, it's called Nome, it's a rather large city actually, Nome. I went into the mass grave in the cemetery and discovered that the river that normally had flowed on the side of the village at some distance away, it had changed course. Since 1918, it had come into the village and melted the permafrost. I could just see it. And then I engaged a bush pilot to fly me to an other village called Wales at the Bering Strait. I found them where the mass grave was, clearly marked with a large cross. And the bluff had fallen on to the beach and almost excavated or invaded the mass grave. So I figured there is no permafrost here. So the bush pilot flew me to what today is, is Breivik. But there was no way to land there. I had to land on the beach at some distance away in another village. And then I had to cross some water with a whale boat. Got across this really sizable water. And then I had to walk about six miles in soggy tundra. It's just beginning to melt and then on to Breivik. They had a village council, the Council of the Elders. And it's a matriarchal society. So the eldest woman of the largest family makes decisions or, or heavily influences decisions. And little did I know that that was going to be very important later on. Fortunately for me, there were three survivors of the 1918 pandemic still alive. So I asked them to please tell the other members here of the council what it was like in that November week when 90% of the village died. Then I said, I, if, if you allow me to enter the grave and if I am fortunate enough to come find the right specimens, I will take it back, the specimen back to uh, my laboratory. And if everything works out well, it will be possible for us to develop a vaccine. So in the next pandemic coming, threatening you, we will have a vaccine to immunize you, protect you. They understood what vaccine was because they had been immunized against smallpox. Uh, the matriarch, Jenny Volana, was in favor of that. So that influenced the decision. So they allowed me to, to um, open the grave. So I went out on the grave site and started to dig, and in about a foot down, I came onto permafrost. Very hard, and I froze the ground. And I started a fire 
got drifters from the beach and climbed up on the bluff and there were the masquerade and started to melt the, the permafrost. And on the end of the second day, I came down about four feet and there I found the first victim, young child, a girl, I estimated 12 years age. But the condition of her body at four feet from the surface was so good that I was confident that down deeper they will be even be better, better preserved of, and adults and so on. 72 bodies in that grave. Now, I didn't come alone to Alaska. I had my faculty advisor, influenza virologist. I had a pathologist, one of the professors in the department in Iowa, to perform the postmortem examinations, and then autogeist. So there were four. I was out there ahead of them to, to scout the grave, to scout, to, to test dig. A day later, they came to the same beach where I had landed earlier, and we traveled the same way back to, to Breivik. Now there were four of us digging, so we could do it very rapidly. About three days later, we were down six feet. And then we found three perfectly preserved bodies. And the pathologist performed the postmortems on them, and the lungs were, were perfectly preserved. Then we, we left, thank the villagers, close the grave, and I took some pictures, of course, all the, all the time. So eventually I got to, to Iowa with this, and I started to try to grow the virus, trying to find an alive influenza virus. Week after week after week after week, I got more and more discouraged. And eventually I had no more specimen. And the virus was dead. And there went my PhD. I could see it fly off through the window in the, in the non-air-conditioned office, by the way, lab I had. I decided to go back to Sweden to continue my medical education. And I was exceeding, extremely fortunate. Of, I was offered to continue medical school at Iowa. And then I got my MD there, become a pathologist. But back in my mind, I had this memory of, not getting my PhD and all the effort went into that, and it was just kind of collapsed. Molecular pathology is a specialty of medicine where pathologists use the tools of molecular biology and molecular genetics to make diagnoses and provide insight into patient care decisions. You can make diagnoses of infectious diseases by looking for the genetic material of the infectious organism, the virus or the bacteria, for example. I was in the National Cancer Institute as a pathologist in the 80s, and in 1993, I moved to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology to set up a new group devoted to molecular pathology, both for clinical uh, molecular pathology as well as research. And one of the things we had to do for both sides of that was to work out ways to recover genetic material from typical biopsy material. The tissue repository at the AFIP goes back to the Civil War, so they have a huge collection of millions of tissue samples uh, reflecting all aspects of clinical disease, tumors and infectious disease, including autopsies of soldiers who died of flu in 1918. I wanted to think of uh, a project that would highlight the utility of having such an old tissue archive, as well as our new molecular techniques in which we could do analyses. And the way those two things came together in my mind was to go after the 1918 flu. We 
thought that it might be possible to recover fragments of the genetic material of the virus still preserved in autopsy tissues of people who died in 1918. When we started the project, there were really two fundamental questions that we wanted to answer. That is, one, why was this virus so particularly virulent? Why did it kill so many people, especially young, healthy adults? And secondly, where did this virus come from? We were hoping to learn from what we see in 1918 to apply it to the future so that we could understand how pandemics form and why particular flu viruses cause more disease than others. These tissues were extremely old and it was not clear that we could actually recover any genetic material at all from these samples. We had to work out techniques and continue to refine the techniques to extract uh, nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, from these samples. We had uh, started this project in 1995, and uh, it, it took over a year to find a first positive case, to work out our techniques to make sure that we uh, actually could find influenza. Once we had found a first positive case and we started to generate sequence and compare it to known influenza viruses, we were convinced that we had really found the 1918 virus. But we were really concerned that there would be uh, inadequate amounts of material available to us to sequence the whole virus from that uh, material. In March of 1997, in Science News, there it was. 1918 pandemic virus found. A small sequence had been discovered by Jeffrey Tartenberg. I wrote a letter saying, if you need more specimens, let me know and I will go back to Alaska. I've been there before, I know where it is, I can go back. And uh, I, I didn't hear anything, I didn't hear anything. And I thought, well, he knows, he thinks I'm a nut, and that was just so bad. He happened to be on vacation, so he didn't get his mail. We were extremely excited about the possibility. We, we had hoped that if we could recover material from a frozen victim, that the quality of genetic material of the virus might be improved over what we had in these formal and fixed blocks. And he, he called me here. So he asked, when can you go? I said, I can't go this week, but I can go next week. And I called up to Breivik. Now, this time, when I come the second visit on 19, uh, 1997, it so happened it was in August. And that is a much better time to dig in the permafrost. What is he, the missionary? It's another, another one now. Pastor uh, Brian Crockett is, is his name. He's still there. And he knew of the excavation that I had carried out in 1951. And he also knew that I had to get the permission to do it again. So he said it was very difficult. Uh, you may not be able to, to get a permission this time. But I, I, will, I will introduce you to Rita Olana. She was a matriarch at 1997. And little did I know that her grandmother was Jenny Olana. That was it. It would never have happened otherwise. Everything doesn't go wrong all the time. It just looks like that, but it did. Here it is. Crucial. Dr. Halton presented his case to the Brevik Village Council, including Rita Olana. He made sure they understood that the virus was dead and could not cause disease. I also told them how important it is because your participation, this is where it begins. And you're part of the team now, the villages of Breivik, and I'm the specimen collector, and then Dr. Tarbenberger in, in the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. These are the three, but it begins with you. 
And I got the permission to go. I figured no one wants to go in a grave with bodies. So I, I was set to do it myself. And uh, so one of the members said, would you like to have some help? Four young men, Eskimos, assigned by the village council, assigned to help me. Because I photographed with me, I knew where the, where the grave was. So I marked it off. At the end of the, of the first day, we were down to about four feet, and I didn't see anything at all. And, and five feet, and the following day, I noticed that there's some bodies at seven feet. Found this, uh, a skeleton, and then next to the skeleton was a, a woman, and perfectly preserved. The clothing had fallen off, rotted away, but I could see the skin, and it was of an obese woman. I started to do the postmortem, and then I took the rib cage off, and there exposed the lungs, and they were the textbook picture of a person who had died from acute viral pneumonitis. Exactly what I needed. The subcutaneous fatty layer of Lucy and fat inside, inside, of course, also that had protected the lungs from uh, the occasional thaws of the permafrost that had reached seven feet down. The Eskimos are not obese. There's not that much food around and they were active and hard work, in particular in 1918. So find one who has had extra calories, storage calories. This is just remarkable. And here was a woman who had ample food, had a good husband, good seal hunter, walrus hunter, brought all this food for her. Can you imagine how fortunate? And then I decided before I leave, I'm going to make new crosses, show my gratitude to the village. I had photographs of the original crosses. I knew how tall they were, the width, everything. I finished my work with the crosses at one o'clock and about eight o'clock the next morning, the high school kids came and they helped me put the crosses in. And about an hour later, the bush pilot landed and I got all my specimens on board and then I shipped them to Jeffrey Darwinberger. The advantage that we had was that the formalin fixed autopsy tissue samples were extremely tiny, just the size of a fingernail. And so we're very limiting, where he was able to provide us large sections of an entire lung uh, so that even though the quality of RNA was lower, we had so much more material to work with, it became absolutely clear that we would be able to sequence the rest of the virus from that material. I figured it would take weeks and weeks before he had any inkling of that the specimens were good. Like 10 days later, he called and he said, Joel, we have it. Specimen is good. And we have lots of specimen. Great material. And this is going to be wonderful. It was a great day for me because I started in 1955. Finally, in 97, here it is. Made it. But again, without the, the Eskimos in Breivik, nothing would have come. The effort to sequence the entire genome of the 1918 virus from beginning to end took 10 years. Uh, it was uh, a very laborious process. 
or more than 13,000 pieces of genetic information that had to be put together as a total. So he, if he gets a, sequ a sequence uh, or a, a, a stretch of the um, of the a gene, a little piece, so he has it, you're looking at it here, and in a gene is this long, and it's fully uh, built. And this piece, where does it fit in here? Fit in here? Or is it in this end here? Or is it this way? And, and what comes to the left and the right? And, 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 and day after day, month after month, putting, putting these things together, year after year. So 13,000 pieces plus pieces had to go from this r proper place. And in it's incredible. It's clearly a virus that was human adapted, but genetically it's very bird-like in its sequence. It's very avian-like. And so what we think is that it is a, an entirely avian-like influenza virus that somehow adapted to humans. We now know that there are a number of mutations in several of the genes that are absolutely crucial in the adaptation to humans. And so you could imagine using these mutations as a screening tool to assess the significance of a bird strain as to whether it was actually moving along the path that would make it adapt to humans. If we identify changes that were crucial to allow a bird virus to replicate in humans, you could particularly design drugs that might block or bind to that particular change to prevent a bird virus from actually functioning in humans. The 1918 flu had as its most unique feature the fact that it had a high propensity to kill young adults ages 15 to 40. Even having the entire sequence of the virus in front of us, uh, we do not yet understand why it behaved in that manner. I favor the idea that people in that particular age group might have had the wrong sort of immunity to the 1918 virus. Some kind of uh, immune response that actually made them more susceptible to die. In people older than about age 45 or 50 in 1918, there might have been pre-existing immunity to viruses similar to the 1918 virus we're trying to identify influenza virus positive autopsy tissue samples from before 1918 to try to help us figure out this problem. Jeffrey Torbenberger's uh, right-hand woman, Anne Reed, very accomplished. She was sent up with a plaque from the AFRP to present it to the village council. If this Torbenberger's work brings antiviral drugs and good vaccines and the savings of hundreds of millions of lives. It began with Rita Olana and Jenny Olana. Another question about the death toll in the 1918 flu pandemic was how people died after they became ill with the flu. Dr. Taubenberger and Dr. Morins examined not only the autopsy tissues in the AFIP collection, but also autopsy reports from all over the world of people who had died of pandemic influenza. We find that uh, the vast majority of people dying died because of secondary bacterial pneumonia. What we think happened is that a very virulent influenza virus caused such an extensive uh, inflammatory response in the lungs and caused such tissue damage that bacteria like strep or pneumococcus that are very commonly carried in the throat of, of normal individuals could spread down into the lung and cause a disease that would ultimately actually kill the person. The evidence of the bacterial pneumonias, I think, helps explain why you had such high mortality in military camps, particularly. 
while this is very important in trying to understand what happened in 1918, it also has significant implications for pandemic planning in the future. We've really seen an explosion in information about influenza in the last 10 or so years uh, because primarily, I think, of sequencing of the 1918 virus, but also uh, the unusual events associated with the H5N1 virus, the bird flu virus. We've been watching this particular avian influenza virus for over 10 years now. These viruses are highly transmissible from bird to bird and they can destroy a flock of birds. But the most important thing from the public health perspective is that humans who have very close contact with the new 2009 H1N1 virus of influenza, we have much better technologies to treat acutely and seriously ill individuals like efficient, good respirators, intensive care units, people who have expertise in medicine, that's acute care medicine. All of these things we did not have back then. We have them now. Our parents and grandparents had little warning or chance to prepare. But we know now that influenza has caused pandemics at intervals for at least the last 500 years. Public health officials have been preparing for the next flu pandemic, knowing that it could be a mild pandemic as in 1968 or as severe as in 1918. The world is watching a new pandemic flu virus, the novel H1N1 flu virus, which emerged in the spring of 2009. We know that the new 2009 H1N1 virus is in almost every country of the world already. Fortunately, so far, the 2009 H1N1 virus doesn't appear to have that level of severity that the 1918 one had. The 2009 H1N1 virus is affecting people differently than seasonal flu strains. The illness is most common in young people, children and young adults, but we're also seeing um, hospitalizations and deaths in particular in people who have conditions that increase their risk of complications. Pregnant women have really been heavily hit by this virus. In the United States and reports around the world suggest that native populations may have a higher risk of severe illness caused by the 2009 H1N1 strain. We want to be ready and we want to make sure that these populations are served and that they have good access to health care and to the vaccination. Everyone has the experience throughout the world that the best way to contain influenza is by getting a very efficient and safe vaccine. Vaccines, given the current technology, and even in more modern technology, you don't make a vaccine overnight. You have to first find out what the virus is you're dealing with, and then you go through a multi-step process in order to get enough vaccine to protect the population. That multi-step process generally takes several months, usually along the line of six or more months. Vaccination is a really important part of our response to the 2009 H1N1 virus, but it's important to say it's not the only part of it. We have a whole series of mitigation efforts and a whole series of communication efforts. Public health officials are fighting the spread of influenza with the health hygiene we learned as children. Stay home when you're sick. Wash your hands frequently with warm water and soap for 20 seconds. Practice cough and sneeze etiquette and avoid touching your eyes, nose or mouth. At the start of a pandemic, um, that's, that's, that's the most efficient tool we'll have. In addition to, obviously, 
um, social distancing, like staying home when you're sick and, and so on. But, um, um, you know, we are, we are a community that hugs, that shakes, that have elevators that you need to ride on to go to different parts of a building. We go grocery shopping and we need to push our carts. Everything you do, basically, you need to touch something that other people touch. And so um, that hand-washing bit will be very critical. These good habits and vaccination also prevent the spread of seasonal flu. An annual immunization for the seasonal flu helps people stay healthy and helps health workers prepare to vaccinate the population during a pandemic. These immunizations are widely available every year. It's very important for people, particularly people who are 65 and over, to take the influenza immunizations. It's important to have the vaccine every year, and the vaccine is a covered Medicare benefit. There's absolutely no way you will get the flu from the flu shot. Based on what I know and what I have been observing with this 2009 H1N1 virus, and based on what I know about influenza vaccines, the risk of getting influenza or having a complication from influenza is much higher than any theoretical risk of from the vaccines. And that is true when vaccines were actually using the molecular makeup of the viruses and created to target it. Now, do you want to see something quite distraught? There's something that will cause you discomfort, actually. There's a book called The Ninth Creation. Oh, great. Everyone can see my shopping list here. Okay. <laughs> I can't turn that off. It doesn't matter. I'm going to show it to you guys. I don't care. It's called The Ninth Day of Creation. An ecological catastrophe has changed, oops, has changed the face of northern China. The warnings of Beijing's harshest critics have come true. Yet as the world's most populous nation teeters on the brink of collapse, only its panic leaders know the full extent of the disaster. Fearing they will be blamed for its grisly toll, the Politburo gather in secrecy inside the city's famed Temple of Heaven and issue instructions for the Army's top gene technologists to initiate a startling plan of action to guarantee their survival. Across the Pacific in San Diego, Richard Kirby, a promising biochemist at Immunological Technologies, prepared to announce, prepares to announce a breakthrough in medicine. His introduction of a third strand into the double helix of Watson and Crick will unite organic chemistry with gene therapy and ignite the imagination of millions. But when Kirby travels to Geneva to make public the news, he inadvertently sets in motion a chain of events that threaten to derail more than just Beijing's carefully scripted plans for the U.S., Kirby also impedes the White House's last-ditch strategy for dealing with Camila Montoya, Mexico's troublesome first woman president, when he attracts the fiery leader's attention at a World Health Organization conference. From that moment of that chance meeting until Kirby and Montoya's eventful reunion at its biologically alarming conclusion, Ninth Day of Creation explores that rarely glimpsed world born of science and politics and 
full collision and delivers a tale so convincingly detailed as to guarantee its unique placement among science thrillers. Whoa, that's kind of heavy. Kind of heavy. Kind of super heavy, isn't it? Well, here's the really cool part. See, this book, The Ninth Day of Creation, was actually created in collaboration with Jeffrey Taubenberger, you know, the guy that actually resurrected the Spanish flu of uh, 1918. And apparently, the character in this movie that you heard of, Kirby, for immunological technologies, resurrects the 1918 Spanish flu in secrecy in San Diego, California. And so he introduced a gene therapy as a vaccine to make people completely immune. Almost sounds like freaking script, doesn't it? Considering that Jeffrey now is the head of, uh, he's like the chief of viral pathogenesis and evolution, working under Fauci, of course. And um, he discovered influenza A viruses. Oh, what? Uh, he discovered one of them, um, which are responsible for the yearly flu. And, um, you know, he's um, done a lot of research in regards to these uh, viruses. Hmm. Um. It's quite fascinating when you look at things from a 40-foot, 40,000-foot view, how things start to make sense. You know, there are triple helixes, so that's a conversation for another time. The question is, what's really going on here? Because, you know, a vaccine is you take the virus, you, you know, sequence it, and then you create it. It's just really weird that we're using technology to rewrite information. Just, just saying, just saying. Now, one thing that I should also say is that with every disease, tons of orphans would arrive. Tons of orphans would appear. So many of them, it's just ridiculous. Oh, before we watch that nicely created uh, documentary, I mentioned Thomas Coram, who was uneducated, uh, a sea captain, like does commerce. And he was really upset that he saw children dying in the streets. And he had petitioned the king of England to create uh, the foundling hospital, which was not because they were sick, but just to take care of the orphans. And mothers would just drop off their babies to the hospital and the baby would be given a new name and um, that's it. And if the mother wanted to come back for it, they would leave something that they can identify like a, a blanket, a toy, a coin, a written something. This opened up in 1740. And the first kids put in this orphanage slash hospital uh, was in 1941. And um, 
It was a children's home, right? It's where they put, they wanted to help uh, illegitimate children, is what they called it. And children had to be um, infants in order to come. Uh, they had to be uh, less than a year old. And after the mother was interviewed and were deemed fit, the children would be accepted. They would be sent to live with a foster family in the country. And when they were four or five years old, uh, they would then go into the school or hospital. Sorry. And they would be educated up until they were 15. And then they would be sent out to to work or go to the military, the, you know, if they remained. It's it's quite scary to think because, you know, you remember the stories of Oliver Twist with all the kids out on the street working and they were all orphans, bunches of trains taking them. Um, they did the same thing in the U.S. too. And not only that, we actually have an organization called the New York Foundling in New York. Did you guys know that? Now, there are testimonies of young mothers that were out on the street that come from impoverished families that live there and have their babies. A lot of them just drop them off. So weird. I thought I would show you their advertisement. Take a listen. My mom wanted to put me somewhere where I was safe. After having my four children, I wanted to have that fulfillment of finishing my education. I said, you know what, I can't, I can't be in a gang. Something I had to really change my life. They like really made me feel like I was at home and I just loved it. We have a 150-year history of being responsive and accountable to our neighbors. You need a community around you, and Foundling operates in that. We're a family. We empower children, adults, and families. We sit down and we talk to them and say, hey, what are your goals? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? How can I help you? The real success for me is when they move on, they seek out opportunities where they can be forces of positive change. If we focus on the four pillars, that people get to choose where they live, they connect to their community, they have relationships and good health, and you know, our job is done. There is potential in every single person. We impact communities and, and thus impact families, which in turn makes a difference in every child's life. When we grow up, we have that future and it all depends on us. We can't change what's in the past, but as long as we have time, we can change the future. If we can intervene in one generation, the likelihood that any of their family members return to the same social status is reduced dramatically. They be helping me since day one. I end up having everything on my own, working, doing the best I can. I didn't know I was going to fight the cancer, you know. And all the staff was with me and they guide me and they help me through it together. Family is key. If we prepare to be good role models for our children, 
you, you become a better family. I think that the foundling for the next 20, 30, 40 years will continue to focus more on family-based and community-based care. This is a rich, rich place. Five dollars in a cradle in 1869. 25 years later, over 24,000 children had passed through the sisters' care. And so the sisters had always prided themselves in not only responding to the needs of the day, but anticipating the needs of tomorrow. We don't have all the answers, but we think we've asked an awful lot of the questions. There's definitely hard moments, but as long as you get the help you need, you can always achieve. Dang. Dang, dang, dang. Did you guys see the picture with Bush and the Clintons in the background? Did you see that? Did you see that? That was pretty weird, right? That was super weird, right? Right? And all, and, and I think the one picture had like this, um, was it a, a priest or a cardinal? It was that guy that went to the Dominican Republic and ran away, you know, the, the pedo guy. Do you guys remember that in the news a couple years ago? So weird. So weird. So orphan trains are a thing that would happen when they had labor shortages and they would use these um, foundlings, right? That's so weird. Because what happened was after they would, how's this? 1700s roll along and the United States gets its independence. Suddenly uh, Europe is falling ill to um, a a plague back then, right? They were all getting sick. See, a lot of people don't talk about this. This this whole timing thing, they make you think that shit happened at another time. And you're like, yeah, no, I remember that it happened then. And then, no, 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 maybe it was another century. No, that's when it happened. Like if you actually look at actual documentation. And so while the United States was gaining its independence and it was expanding and still using methods of, of that of the motherland, right? The nations in Europe went backwards. They used to have electricity in every room of parliament in England. Suddenly it was all candles again. They didn't have glass or windows. And it was really bizarre as they, you know, were trying to get into this industrial revolution. It was so weird. It's like suddenly they all became stupid, right? And they forgot everything. And there were a lot of young people and no middle-aged people, no old people to teach them history. I guess maybe a few senals here and there, but that's it. They literally took away electricity from them. And so then electricity didn't exist. And in the United States, it was again discovered. So weird. So fucking weird. And um, instead of forcing the people and creating these wars and slaughtering people for taxes and using force, the population had exponentially grown. 
And it was quite difficult for them to tame a population that was bigger. Therefore, the experiment of the United States of America from those that were colluding, it's okay, let it happen, ink's not dry, we've already plotted, it would be to make it voluntary. Therefore, the test had begun in the 1900s where they bombarded the people of the world with a technological revolution, with so much information that your head was spinning. From having no lights, you had lights. From having no phones, you had phones, cell phones, to video. From traveling by boat, you're now on a plane in a concord, and you're going into space, and you've got electronics. You've got an idiot box in front of you. You've got radio. You've got music. You've got cars. You were just smacked in the face with a shit ton of stuff. We even had electric cars in the early 1900s, but you know, let's forget about that. We had this and that. And in the middle of all that shit, we had wars. They hijacked your mind to love the wars, to be behind the wars, that you had a cause and they use advertising and products and everything. And suddenly all these corporations popped up and you're sitting right under them. You're at the bottom of their shoe. And you, if you are, if you as a nation are a person, you got money past hundred years. They gave you everything. Diseases, no diseases, craziness, no craziness, AIDS, no AIDS, drugs, rock and roll, the whole nine yards. You're, you were just overstimulated. You know how when you give babies like 20 million toys and they're just like playing with everything and then suddenly they just fucking stop and they're just like, yeah, so I don't want to play anymore. Fuck this. I just want to sit here and do absolutely nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Suddenly you're in this trance of overload and you're like, oh my gosh, like, who? Wow, I'm done. <laughs> so now they're like, wait, we got them right where we want them. They listen to everything we say. The majority of them do. And now we're going to bring it home. Oh, but then Trump happened. Fuck. The fucker, we should have had this done in 2018. Should have scared the living daylights out of them and had them in their house for five years so we can kill them off. You know, Australia didn't get the memo. They're locking people in their houses already. That's the proving ground. And it's like, who did it? At least China. Oh, no, it's not. I'm going to tell you this today, and I'm going to show it to you in one of the segments of the documentary. And listen to me very carefully. COVID was deployed with our tax dollars from the State Department. I repeat, the source of COVID was the U.S. State Department. Oh, and I can actually prove that. Because if you remember, if you remember, China was like, look, man, you know, COVID's like no big deal here. Like, I don't know what they're talking about. There was like a bunch of army people here and American, you know, people like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, okay. Like they came here. Like what? China was like blindsided. What the fuck, man? Why are you guys bringing it on us? We always get sick. We got 20% of the world's population here. We got smog. We're terraforming. We're fucking shit up. Like you don't see us dropping dead. Wait, what? What do you mean TikTok? Wait, what? Huh? Mm. 
I see. See, <laughs> it's a fucking show. And the thing is, they're playing the same goddamn movie they played a hundred years ago. Your money, your State Department did that. Your money, your State Department did that. And I can prove it. You know, a lot of people are CIA. Not really, the CIA is not all bad, okay? Not all of it. But the deep State Department, now that shit's the real CIA. I've said that many times. You may think the CIA is bad. Yeah, when it comes to foreign policy and wars and shit and setting up other nations. But when it comes to fucking America, State Department's first in line. They're the ones right there. State Department. No wonder Anthony Blinken's there. I mean, why not? You seen the emails about him and Hunter Biden's laptop? Right, Tony, Tony, Tony? Stop. But you'll see that yourself later. I really did want to get into all the orphans. I wanted to give you the story about Thomas Crump, but I'll probably do that tomorrow. Because, well, if I can tomorrow. Because tomorrow is an insane day. I took out one of my roasts so they could defrost. Thank you for someone who put the message there because I totally forgot. And I like the way I put note to self. Um, it was, uh, is, it was pretty crazy. It's another crazy day, but it is, it's going to be crazy. I like my kids are moving in. I, I, I walked into the house late at night and there's just boxes everywhere. I felt like I was, I had to conduct some in avoid Tetris moves so that I can get to my bedroom. It was, it gave me a headache just looking at it. It was driving me insane. Um, it was, just, it was really driving me insane. Um, and then today I had unexpected guests. Well, not un- completely unexpected, but it was a pleasant surprise having Gavin over here and Lily. Um, and it was, and it was good because I was showing the frustrations of my tech. <laughs> and the thing is, I have to, to play kind of simple. But anyway, so tomorrow, I'm hoping, because I have to go travel tomorrow. I'm traveling tomorrow. Um, so I may not be back in time. I'm hoping I do. Like, I, I may be back in time, right? But um, I'm getting something that I can't talk about on air. So I have to travel, and it's going to be pretty far. So I've got, um, <laughs> I'm really excited about it, too. So um, hopefully I'll be back in time for that because uh, tonight I got to stay up until late. Now that I figured it out, thank you, Gavin, on, on how to do something. Um, I'm hoping that I actually finish. I can't use certain. It's because I have some programs. So I've been using some programs that have been failing and not whatever. And it's, I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. And it's kind of like, you know, you're in that brain fart situation when you're doing a million things. Before I go, I wanted to say something. I got um, a response to my federal lawsuit today uh, against Mayfield High School. You know, I filed a, a motion to amend my case and bring in the Supreme Court case like the attorney general had suggested at the Supreme Court level. And um, I submitted it. And in addition to that, I was like, hey, you know, since, you know, all these losers have a problem with me not having a lawyer, 
why don't you appoint me an attorney? I need an attorney, right? Appoint me an attorney because obviously they're saying that I can't be pro se. I mean, that's a big stretch. A judge actually forcing an attorney to take you on pro bono. That's pretty badass because truth be said, I don't make 200% over the poverty limit as you know, that I don't make that. So I can't afford an attorney. The second I can't find one. And so do you know what that high school did? I kid you not. They filed a response to that and it came from their weird diversity and inclusion uh, attorney, Stephanie Schmiel, right? Not lots of diversity and inclusion for pro se's, is there? But they sent a response bitching on how I'm, listen to this, the contradictory, okay? The contradictions, the hypocrisy. Um, <clears throat> they said I didn't abide by a specific rule and I shouldn't get an attorney because I'm too stupid to write things as a pro se. So obviously somebody else is writing it for me because I'm dumb. So I'm like, okay, so first you're saying I'm too dumb to write this, but I've handed your ass to you. And your only argument is she's too dumb to do it herself. So don't give her a lawyer, see if she actually did it herself. And I'm thinking, dude, were we not on the same fucking call when you came to a hearing as a law firm to discuss an unopposed motion to dismiss? They filed a motion to dismiss. I didn't even file opposition to it. And I fucking won. That dude, the, the, the law firm had to eat shit because... I litigated the fuck out of it. And I was like, I crafted an email and I'm like, firstly, I told you not to use that email because I don't have access to it. Second, I'm insulted that you're calling me dumb. Don't you remember? You had to go back to your firm and explain how you lost an unopposed motion to dismiss to a fucking pro se, right? And mind you, I did actually do two years of an LLB in law. Not completed degree, but I did go to school for it. And my IQ is like 216. And, you know, law isn't rocket science, which I'm very well versed on too. Um, so like, what the fuck, dude? It's in fucking English. I don't need a degree to be able to write shit and talk. So I wrote this email and then I said, you know, I should just fucking call this out as obstruction of justice. And I said, the only argument you have is to insult me because you can't argue that the constitution isn't valid. Like what? But I didn't send it. Okay. I didn't send it. I didn't. Instead, tomorrow morning, I'm filing a response that's clearly going to just point out the hypocrisy and say, okay, so yeah, you know, they're right. I, I didn't abide by this rule because I'm not a lawyer, hence why I'm asking for a lawyer, but I'm confused because they're telling me that my responses are so amazing that I can't write it, but then they're telling me, I don't know the rules of the court. Which one is it? Am I doing it myself or am I not? Which one? Now I'm thinking of adding just another line or two, like fuck you or I'm insulted or offended or something or hey, your diversity inclusion bitch, you know, isn't very inclusive right now. 
But I want people to know that a lot of people around the U.S. are being, uh, you know, with their cases. I know that there's a lot of people that are being harassed by these law firms from these school boards. Oh, you're going to pay my fees. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And you watch. And then people are freaking shitting their pants. Like, wait, so if we go to court, they're going to ask for court. First of all, a, a, a judge will not give you make you pay attorney fees. I'll tell you what, I'm supposed to be paying attorney fees for the North Dakota attorney general. You think I paid something? Fuck no, I have not. So next. Also, every single one of you that are waiting for that, you can also file and ask the court and say, you know, based on this federal rule, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I can put it out there for you guys. Um, you know, I, I don't have the amount of money that should be the bare minimum for me to hire a lawyer. And even if I'm at the threshold, uh, lawyers are costing me a lot more. So, um, you know, uh, appoint me a lawyer. I mean, that's kind of fantastic. If you have the GOV assign you an attorney and the attorney, you could be like, you know, you'll be passing it through with all your friends in your, in your group. And you're going to be talking about what the attorney tells you because the attorney has to be careful because he could get fucked up for bad practice too. So they got to be real careful. Okay. They got to be real careful, real careful. So really careful. So the attorney that you get appointed can't fuck you because then he could lose his license especially if you call him out and he has to do what you say too. So um, I just wanted to, 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 to make that clear, right. That, uh, you know, there's no way you should back down. There's always a way to just ping it back. And for those of you that will be requesting attorneys to be appointed to you, do it. Fear not do it because dang, it's going to get very fun. I mean, look, these people are literally telling you exactly what the foundlings did, right? Back then with the sickness and all that shit, the parents don't have rights over their kids. They're going to be taking your kids. They're telling you your kids don't have constitutional rights. You need to pay for an attorney to represent your kid, but your kid can't represent itself and you're not allowed to talk to attorney. You can't be the representative of your kid. Basically, your kid is owned by the state. Shut the fuck up and we do what we want. Right. That's basically what they're telling you. So do not cower. I'm not. I mean, guys, my case is I think it's dragged on for like forever. And I know that the judge being a senior judge is looking at the law. And I think that's something smart that I want to craft in the morning when I get up uh, before I go file that in the federal court tomorrow morning. I want to put it on on there like I'm insulted that, you know, that I, I'll find something. Because it's a one-pager filing. I mean, it's just the most horrific thing I've seen. It's got to suck to be people like that. I mean, like that Stephanie Schmelt, diversity inclusion. Fuck's sake. Like, what does that even mean? Diversity inclusion. So I guess I have to be gay, queer, black, polka dot, or brown to be afforded some rights. Go fuck yourself, Stephanie Schmiel. So um, on that note, please do not be discouraged. Face that, face every challenge like it's lunch. Be like, I'm going to eat you for lunch. That's all. I'm going to eat you for lunch. That's all. And suddenly everything goes away. Because remember, we live in a reality construct that we construct 
so that they can live. Without your reality construct, they cease to exist. I hope that tells you more than what the words say. I hope. Now, on that note, I think we should uh, listen to a song. Let me pull it up because I almost lost it. This, where is it? And keep this to your heart. Remember, every single one of you, death in Rome, fire starter. You're all fire starters. And the trouble start, parking instigator. And the fear of exit, danger in the street. And the fire start, twisted fire start. You're a fire start, twisted fire start.